Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Now, Bike Talk co-host Galen Mook interviews two legislative champions of safe streets, Assemblymember Laura Friedman in California and Representative Lindsay Sabadosa in Massachusetts. All right, well, welcome to Bike Talk. We are the bi-coastal hour-long bike-themed talk show broadcasting out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, North Hampton, or I should really say Florence, Massachusetts, and then also Los Angeles, um, and all places in between over the web on SoundCloud. Today's topic is going to be bike policies on the local, on the state, and on the general level. And to guide us in this conversation, we've got the elected policymakers from both sides. Um, Laura Friedman is the representative of the 43rd District in the California Assembly and the chair of the Assembly's Transportation Committee. And we have Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa, representative for the 1st Hampshire District out in Western Massachusetts. Rep. Sabadosa and Assemblymember Friedman are known for being powerful allies of walking, biking, complete streets, and multimodal transportation. Thank you so much for coming on to Bike Talk. How are you? Good. Happy to be here. Doing well. Thank you for having me. Nice. Awesome. So the districts you represent are quite different. Um, We have the District of Los Angeles metropolitan area, which has some and I think we should underscore just some walkable neighborhoods, but is largely known for its car culture and how the built environment in L.A. is a challenge based on uh, how it's uh, it's designed for cars. Yeah, thank you. In California, we have 28 million licensed drivers and over 30 million registered vehicles. So we have more cars than we even have people. And we certainly use more land for cars and parking than we do housing for, for people. So it really shows you the scale of what our car culture has done in California. Our infrastructure, our housing policies, everything revolves around cars. Now, we're not as densely populated as some parts of the country, particularly in older parts of the country or in European uh, countries to which we're often uh, compared to. We tend to be a lot more sprawling probably because of our reliance and over-reliance on single-passenger vehicles. Transportation and mobility is very much tied to land use and zoning and planning. And that's the way that I've been approaching a lot of my work, is to try to de-silo a lot of these issues. And of course, it's very tied to a lot of other issues that people care about, notably climate change and equity policies. Is there um, kind of some milestones or turning points in L.A.? that have led the 43rd to kind of be where we're at today. And is there anything that you might think of to um, kind of gain back some of the walkability and bikeability that we're seeking? That's a great question. Some of the first freeways in the entire country were built in Los Angeles. To build the first freeway, which was the 110 in Pasadena, California actually tore a bike highway down and used that route. Hmm. And to build the second freeway, which was the 101, California destroyed a passenger train line. Uh, to use that right-of-way to build that freeway. California is also the birthplace of the first drive through restaurant, and so it really shows how car culture goes way back in our history. Now, L.A. County is 4,700 square miles and has roughly the population of New York City, which is only 480 square miles. In L.A. County, we have 101 square miles. That's 101 square miles dedicated to surface parking lots. That is 10 more square miles than the entire city of Boston. So that shows you that if our parking lots were a city, 
they would be Boston. Wow. And yet they're not used to housing house people. And then think about what most people in LA would say is the biggest crisis currently in Los Angeles, and that's housing. Mm-hmm. So we have the room. It's just that we've given that room to automobiles and to surface parking lots for automobiles instead of to human beings. Mm-hmm. California is also the birthplace of the vehicle code. Uh, so a lot of a lot of what we know around the country, the highways, the vehicle code, drive-through restaurants, has to do with our car culture. These are hard conversations, and I've been trying to do legislation in this area for a couple of years now, and with some success, but also some very notable failures. Uh, in in just because it's really hard to get legislation through that would hold planning agencies more responsible mm-hmm. and to try to change the way that we're doing our infrastructure and our large transportation projects and to change what kinds of planning our metropolitan planning agencies are currently doing. Because even though people talk a good game about climate change and about the harm of sprawl and about the equity drivers behind not trying to force everybody to have a car or to suffer bad, a bad life or lack of mobility. Instead, they continue to put almost all of their resources into expanding highways, building new highways, creating more sprawl, and thinking only of things like bike lanes as sort of a recreational afterthought, or pedestrian infrastructure only as something you do when you're doing a road or if you have money left over because the people that they care about are the people who drive. Let's be clear. By putting all their money into car-centric infrastructure, what they're saying is, if you don't drive, we don't care about you. Mm-hmm. And that's just wrong from uh, an equity standpoint. It's bad for public health policy. Mm-hmm. We know that people are dying in record numbers. Um, pedestrians and cyclists are dying in record numbers. Uh, through traffic violence, and yet the policies have not changed significantly to address that public health crisis. We know that housing is a huge crisis, and yet we are still building sprawl, and there's still a huge reluctance to even use surface parking lots to re- to rethink them for housing. Mm-hmm. So this is should be all hands on deck, and these issues are absolutely connected. You can't be an environmentalist unless you're for these kinds of policies. You just can't. We can't allow people to pretend that they are. Right. You can't be an environmentalist if you fight housing projects in your neighborhood. Yep. Uh, you can't be uh, uh, for um, better mobility for supporting seniors if you don't support bus rapid transit, if you don't support uh, rail. You know, the, these are, are, are proven uh, uh, Wait, you know, this, this is a proven model that works in, in so many other places, and yet we've ignored it here. And the result is that we have a housing crisis and we have a congestion crisis. And people complain all the time about the traffic congestion in Los Angeles. And yet, when you try to offer solutions sometimes on how to combat that, you get a lot of resistance because of that car culture. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Thank you for all that. Um, these are issues that are intertwined and also interconnected, not just in LA, but across the country. And so I'm going to shift coasts for a second and bring it to Rep Sabadosa out in Massachusetts. I'm curious, what are the similarities of what we're talking about here um, with Assemblymember Friedman's district in LA um, and your district, Rep Sabadosa, what are the challenges in your district, specifically the Northampton and the hill towns and, and the rural Massachusetts, 
And is there the same car centrality and how we've planned, um, you know, the, the Massachusetts way as well? Well, uh, again, thank you for having me here today. And it, it's interesting to compare my district with Los Angeles. It's not something that I've ever done before because <laughs> in a lot of ways they just they couldn't be more dis, more different. Um, I represent nine communities in the western part of Massachusetts. We're in the five college area. Uh, so we have UMass Amherst as the flagship, Smith, Mount Holyoke, lots and lots of college students. Um, that, that spend at least four years here, if not more. And the district is anchored in Northampton, which is about 30,000 people. So I don't know, maybe a neighborhood in Los Angeles. And then uh, eight hill towns or, or smaller communities that sort of snake up Western Hampshire County. And I would say that for the hill towns, most certainly, we have a very car dependent culture. Um, you, have, you know, people who live in the hill towns for a variety of reasons, it may have been where they grew up. Sometimes people move there because they are, frankly, a beautiful place to live. Um, if you want to be out in nature and you're interested in, in having, I think, the proximity of a city, but you still want to get up every morning and hike. I say that about my district. I can go hike and I can have great coffee, so it's the best of both worlds. <laughs> um, but it does lead to certain parts of the district really being very car dependent. And we struggle, quite frankly, with figuring out how to make that less so. Um, when you're talking about hill towns, bike lanes don't make a huge amount of sense unless you are a passionate biker. Because let me tell you, some of those hills are going to, uh, they're going to be a challenge for most people. Electric bikes have made a very big difference. Um, and we're starting to see that, but not for those greater distances quite yet. Um, so we talk a lot about microtransit for the hill towns because buses don't work in the same way. You don't have the same number of people. Um, you have to be a little bit more inventive with those solutions. Um, but I'm not sure that you're ever going to have uh, rural communities where there is an inability to live car free. Um, I, I'm just not sure that that's a, that's a reality that's mm -hmm. in our future. For a city like Northampton, though, there there is that possibility, and we're, I think we're moving closer and closer to it. Um, you know, we have rail that is moving through. We have to work really hard and fight constantly to keep the um, the rail funded. Uh, we was just announced that it's been made permanent because it had come through on a trial uh, on a trial basis from the state and the federal government. Um, and there is a huge investment in bike lanes. The city of Northampton has made a commitment that they are trying to make sure no one lives more than half a mile from uh, from a bike path. Mm. So you really can bike safely around the community. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of what the Assemblywoman said about affordable housing and, and cars really hit home with me because that's one of our fights, to, to try to build housing where you don't necessarily have two parking spaces for each unit. That's, that's hard. Zoners don't want that. A lot of times residents say people parking on the street, but we're trying to figure out how you create density so that you are creating walkable cities, more people living together as opposed to that sprawl. And that does mean having fewer vehicles and fewer parking spaces. One of the new projects that's coming online uh, is going to be senior housing downtown. And they are saying this is a, this is a car free complex. Um, so it's a green complex. There's a volunteer aspect for people who live there because they're trying to make it very cooperative. But at the same time, they're really saying, if, if you want to live here, this is a place you have to live without cars. And it's a great model to see what we could have in the future because our housing is limited. Um, Massachusetts was not built for cars. We, we keep trying to make it so that cars can go through our towns, but we, we have small, narrow roads and yeah, we do have a level of density, even in our more rural areas, that 
I think make it make it possible for us to envision better things. But it's a question of funding, and certainly in communities where um, there's more focus on just basic necessities, things like bike paths definitely take a backseat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see a lot of the um, the overlap too of um, what a summit member Friedman was mentioning about the nature of who gets to make the decisions. And if it's made for people in cars, then everybody else is basically left out of the equation. Um, so I'm wondering if we could dive a little bit into kind of the, the equity concerns as well. And I understand that there's a little bit of a different maybe take of equity in the Hilltown side of things in terms of rural poverty and the toll that that might take and um, the way that we've developed car centrality and the sprawl of Hilltowns. How does that kind of fit in um, to or maybe even overlap a little bit in the conversation around what's fair for who gets access to, to, you know, affordable, safe, and um, sustainable transportation? That's a big question. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I, I think that these are questions that communities are really trying to grapple with. With the Hilltowns in particular, you have a bit of a divide with, like I mentioned, people moving in uh, who, who want to be in the area because they're, again, beautiful places to live. But those people are coming in often with a lot more money than some of the people who have spent their entire lives in these communities. And so there, there does create, there's a, there's a divide between the new people and the old people. And you hear that a lot. And I think when we're talking about issues of transportation, um, some of the, the newer folks in towns are the ones who are talking about bike lanes and some of the people who've been there forever are the ones who are talking about microtransit so that they can get to the doctor's office and to the grocery store in a reasonable uh, amount of time and at a reasonable cost. Mm-hmm. So those things are competing interests and you hear those those play out on the select boards and the reach. Oh, there's a lot of regionalization in rural communities so how do towns band together because the amount of funds is truly very limited. Um, there's a regional working group trying to answer some of these questions for the hill towns, but I don't think that any of us have uh, have a real solution right yet because it is so personalist. We're talking about some communities that have 800 people. So I just I need to put that out there because I think listeners sometimes think, what is she talking about with these small towns? Really tiny, tiny little pockets. Mm-hmm. And isolation is very real. And there's no real economic center to a lot of these communities. So you're talking about people not just um, get finding a way to get around, but you're talking about getting them to wherever it might be that they view as um, as sort of a hub of their community. So it might be coming down to Northampton, it might be going out to Pittsfield, it might be going to Greenfield. People all relate in different ways to um, to larger communities. And I think we need to be very respectful of the decisions that they make around that. There are often real reasons. And we see it just... In so many sectors, I mean, whether it's um, trying to get veterans to the VA, which is in Northampton, sometimes they want to come here, sometimes they want to go out to Pittsfield, and and there are um, there are important cultural reasons for that, and mm-hmm. it makes makes policy making much more challenging. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It's you got to meet people where they're at for sure. Um, well, this kind of leads into my next topic of how some of the solutions. You know, we're talking a lot about the challenges and the realities, but I'm curious. Maybe some of them, Friedman, we'll start with you. Any ideas that you might have in which the individuals might be able to be brought into either maybe not necessarily minimizing cars, but at least encouraging biking and walking as a, a reasonable option for folks? Sure. Well, first, I totally agree with Lindsay that mobility options are going to be different depending on the type of community that you're in. And here in California, I just did a transit tour, actually. Uh, and one of the places that I went was Fresno. 
and visited very small farm communities, um, also of you know a couple hundred people sometimes, and very um, uh, in some cases very economically disadvantaged communities with farm workers, and they they absolutely struggle with some of these mobility issues. You know, they're far away from um, uh, grocery stores, uh, doctors' offices, and many of them can't drive or don't want to drive because there's a lot of elderly people who live in these communities. Mm-hmm. So it, it presents a real challenge. How do you economically run a bus system and how do you run one that has a, a, a timetable that works with people when you're talking about very large distances um, and a very small number of potential riderships at each time? So those are the kinds of, of issues that they've been thinking about. And I will say that they had a very impressive um, rideshare system that the county had set up that was canceled unexpectedly really leaving a lot of people in the lurch where they were giving electric vehicles to community members who then would, for money, drive their neighbors uh, to their appointments. But but what was interesting to me, or actually a, kind of a shock, was that some of these individuals, who again, these are farm workers or ex-former farm workers, uh, very low um, uh, economic um, conditions, um, didn't they only had a bus that ran uh, twice a week, and it was once a day. And so for them to get to doctor's appointments, they said that they have to uh, often hire uh, uh, vehicles and they're paying uh, approximately sixty dollars each way just to get to the doctor. You know, in downtown Fresno, it's really untenable, and there's just not enough focus being put on these communities and they're across California. So it may sound, you know, certainly for a lot of those community members, yeah, they're going to own a car and they need to to get around to where they're going. But there's a lot of people who, for a variety of reasons, just can't own a car. They might be too old to be able to drive safely. They might be too uh, too poor to be able to afford to own and operate and insure a vehicle. So we have to make sure that we have mobility for everybody. And yeah, I, I wouldn't even, I'd, and by the way, there are a lot of people in those communities who use bicycles to get around as their primary mode of transportation. Less for choice and more for necessity uh, and economics. But I would say that to the answer of your question is how do you get more people on bikes? I think uh, two things. First of all, I think that e-bikes really are a game changer for a lot of people who physically weren't able to ride a bicycle, um, and they're becoming cheaper. And now in California, we have incentives, cash incentives, for low-income individuals who want to buy e-bikes. And I'll continue to try to push for more and more of that. And secondly, the other key is safety and making sure that we can get people um, to feel safer riding on a bike lane. Uh, And I know I hear that from a lot of my neighbors, uh, people who want to get out and ride a bike but they just don't feel safe. And so investing in that infrastructure is really important. And one of the things that we hear a lot is, well, why should we do this infrastructure when no one's going to ride it? And, you know, I say, how do you know if anyone's going to ride it? Because it could be that the reason they're not on a bike is because they don't feel safe on a bike. And I hear that all the time when I talk to my constituents. They want to ride more, but they can't. In my neighborhood where I live, there's no sidewalks in my particular little area. And I've got a nine-year-old. And... She wants to ride her bike all the time, and I am afraid to let her ride her bike mm. on her own block because there's no place for her to ride safely. Now, I'm not saying I need a bike lane on my block, but it would be nice if there was even a place where we could drive with her bike to ride, and there's very few of those as well. So uh, I think that policymakers who um, are resisting bike lanes should actually ride around their neighborhood and see what it's like. You know, maybe we don't need it because it's already there and it's wonderful, but maybe there's really a problem and that's why people aren't out there. So I would say a combination of, of those two elements are often the, the barrier and the opportunity. 
I love that. That's great. Um, Reb Sabados, any thoughts along these lines? No, it's it's really interesting. As the assemblywoman was talking, I was thinking about one of my communities where we are trying to extend a bike lane. Um, so there's already a bike lane in Northampton, and we wanted to go out into Hatfield. And it would only go into Hatfield by about 700 feet. So we're, we're not talking about a huge extension. But um, it's been really fascinating to hear the pros and the cons from the community. We have community members who are absolutely terrified that bike lanes are going to bring crime, that bike lanes are going to bring tents, uh, that, um, you know, that it's going to change the whole face of the neighborhood. And then I think to what the assemblywoman was saying, you also have people who are saying, yeah, but I want to get on a bike with my four-year-old and I'm not going to do it because the only other option is, is to ride along what is a very, very busy road. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really can't go to the grocery store by your bike or, or in any other way in this community unless this extension goes into effect. But um, it does really speak, I think, to this uh, this culture that we have of like, well, you know, if you live here, you should just have a car and that's how we get around and we don't want to make these changes. There is there is a level of parochialism. Um, mm-hmm. I, I will say in Massachusetts, I won't speak for other states, but for here, it's, it's something that pops up. And um, I'm hopeful that we will overcome that in the survey they did in that community about half of the people said that they wanted it. Other, the other half had some questions. Um, and this, you know, in another town, Galen, you, you've worked with me in the town of Southampton. It took 20 years to convince that community that a bike lane is an important thing. Um, for those who don't know, the bike path currently ends at the Southampton border and picks up at the other side of town because they were so adamant that they didn't want it. Now, 20 years later, we're working to get them funds and there's going to, the bike lane is, is going to run right through the, the bike path rather is going to run right through town. Mm-hmm. But, um, it, it is fascinating to watch that culture of pushing back against something so simple as a safe place for people to cycle. I, I also really want to pick up on something that uh, some of them are mentioned about e-bikes and the freedom that can come with bikes. It's kind of ironic in my opinion. Um, and I don't want this to be an anti-car. This is bike talk, not anti-car talk, but there's so much that car culture prevents from happening elsewhere. And a lot of people associate cars with freedom. I, I wonder if we could just dive a little bit into the freedom that comes with biking and it could be e-bikes. And I know that uh, Rep. Sabados in Massachusetts and the House of Representatives were pursuing e-bike rebates um, along with e-bike definitions and um, promoting electric bicycles. But, um, well, this is, this is a two-part question, actually. I want to I dive a little bit deeper into the freedom of bikes, but then I also want to pivot to the laws and policies that allow for that freedom to take hold, specifically in a state legislature where you both kind of sit. Um, so maybe, uh, Rep. Sabados, I'll kick it back to you to start with those those two thoughts. Well, I think it's timely because I believe that the e-bike rebates that you were discussing are in the in a bill that's that's finally being passed today, um, which is very exciting. And there, there's um, just e-bikes are, are expensive. They're not as, as inexpensive as a regular. Well, I, I, bikes can be expensive in general, but I think this is going to be a game changer for a lot of people so mm-hmm. that they can afford one. One of the things that Massachusetts has invested, or at least my area of the state, we've invested a lot of money or rental e-bikes. So we have a thing called Valley Bike that's available in different communities and people love it because you can just, you know, use your charge card and get on a bike and go wherever you need to. And they talk about the fact that these bikes are electric means that they can cycle in ways that they couldn't be distance. They couldn't up hills, wherever that might be. Um, so these I think the legislature has really heard how important this is, and they've they've made a commitment. So um, it's part of, I think, our, our transportation and uh, climate initiatives. 
Uh, so remember, Friedman, I, I want to kick it to you too, and I want to call it a specific one that I have in my notes here that um, you were a big proponent of what's called the Omni Bike Law, which was geared towards promoting bicycling as active transportation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit on the policies on the state level that you've been working on either successfully or still have yet to do that are in lines with promoting safe biking and walking and um, all the alternatives that we're pursuing. Thank you. Yeah, I wasn't a champion of it. It was my bill. Yeah. Uh, um, I have a wonderful staffer, David Sforza, who worked for about a year putting this together with the different bike advocacy groups in California. And because it was an omnibus, or we called it our omnibike, it had to be changes that were, were you know, we wanted to make sure that they, there was nothing too controversial because we wanted to get them through. And if there was one piece of one policy that was very controversial, it would sort of kill the rest of them. Mm. So these were things that the changes in state law that we thought we could put together and get through the legislature and we were successful. So there was a whole bunch of stuff in the bill. One of the things that it did is it modified the requirement, which is in current, was in current law, to give cyclists three feet of cycling space when a car passed. And it instead now requires the car to change lanes if it's safe to do so. If you're on a you know, a multi-lane road and it's safe that you should now move over an entire lane. It allows cyclists to take advantage of what's called the leading pedestrian interval, which allows them to go through the intersection when the walk sign is on instead of waiting for the red light, instead of waiting for the same light that cars go through on mm -hmm. or having to get off and walk their bike through so they can take advantage of that. It removes the ability of local governments to enforce a paid or any sort of bicycle registration uh, program. Uh, this was a, a problem because these bike registration programs, sometimes they were expensive, number one, in some cities, and number two, a lot of times they, they had selective enforcement against people of color who were finding. Mm -hmm. So they would only go after people of color for not registering their bike uh, and not white people for not registering their bikes. So we removed that. It can still be voluntary. So it's like my city, for instance, has a voluntary bike registration program. So that they can, basically law enforcement can keep track of your bike in case it's stolen. They'll have the serial number on your registration, but it's not going to be a requirement. Wow. And then it also removed the authority for local governments to ban e-bikes on bike paths, with the exceptions of certain recreational and equestrian trails. Um, if the jurisdiction felt that it made a finding feeling that that could be harmful to those other uses or to the trail itself. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for getting that out and codified. That's That's great. I'm curious how the rest of your colleagues in the California State Assembly were supportive or uh, a bit of friction to this. What was the culture like in um, in the Assembly? They were okay with it. I think most of the time opposition from this kind of bill would come from jurisdictions. So if city council members were calling their legislators with concerns, that's where we would hear about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a lot of advocates that were pushing the bill on the other side. We did have a lot of concerns from some of our parks agencies across the state. Uh, they were worried about having e-bikes on, on sort of mountainous trails and, and or having conflicts with hikers or, cycl or equestrian users. Um, what we realized, too, is that there's a lot of confusion over the different classes of e-bikes. And for the trail part, we only had, I believe, the class one or and class two bikes, not the class three, I think it is, the heavier bikes. So uh, we discovered that people, including me, uh, are, there's confusion about that. There's a, a lack of, of understanding of that there are different types of e-bikes for yep. our state agencies and our parks agencies. So there's an educational component to this as well in educating them uh, and also educating them as to why you would want to have e-bikes, certainly the class one e-bikes. 
think it's the class one, right, that are the smaller ones, mm -hmm. uh, and explaining to them that there are people that have mobility issues, that this allows them, it opens up the outdoors to them. So it's not just these small, paved, ADA-accessible paths that are going to be usable by a lot of folks, but you can get people out on a bike to use a, to go over a much larger area if you allow e-bikes on the path. But I don't think that the bill was particularly difficult to, to pass. Good. Not that, my memory. That's really good to hear. And, you know, I work in Massachusetts, and it's um, a bit of a tug sometimes to get um, – I won't speak for – you rep Sabados and your colleagues, but maybe um, we've, especially on the e-bike side of things, we had to host a lot of demo days, specifically at Beacon Hill, to get legislators' butts on bikes to really show them what we're talking about, because there seemed to be, I wouldn't call it misinformation, but just kind of a, a lack of understanding of some of the main issues, because they know the world not from behind the seat of a handlebars, but maybe rather from a windshield point of view. So how are we really sharing that lived experience with legislators in order to kind of craft policies with which we can promote safer and more affordable and more effective biking? Certainly at the end of the day, it's the advocacy community mm. being very organized and active and loud that makes the difference with all of this legislation, and particularly when it comes to the funding side. And changing the narrative a little bit about who's on a bike and why it's important to care about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to also change the narrative a bit from bike purely as recreation to bike as transportation. And that's something that it's always been there. It's always been transportation. But most of the time in the past, the people who were seen as using bicycles for, tra for transportation were the poorest members of our communities. Mm -hmm. And they were being ignored. Their safety was being ignored. So it was really only when, when wealthier people for a variety of reasons, started to care more about using bicycle for bicycles for transportation, that we now see those investments across the state, or across the, the, the nation, you know, being considered. It's a shame, but it's, it's you know, the, the people that were using a bike to get to their job working in the back of a house of a restaurant, they don't have time to go and advocate for safer bike paths. So it's, it's, but it's bringing them into the conversation, I think is very important as well. Mm -hmm. Because it also humbles people to realize that they've been ignoring a whole group of people just because they haven't been able to advocate for themselves. But they've been there. And if you pay attention, you will see them. Mm -hmm. But they just haven't been seen often by policymakers. They're not looking for them and they're not paying attention to them. Yeah, I want to thank you for saying that, especially as being a leader of an advocacy organization. It's, it's humbling and um, hard to hear that. And it's a reminder that we have so much work to do if we are positioning ourselves here at MassBike as uh, a, a megaphone and a platform for bicyclists. We need to make sure that we are being equitable in how we are approaching our issues. And it's, Look, let me say something controversial. Yeah. In California, in any case, we have, you know, a large, um, we have large communities of color. And they're often not included in the bicycle infrastructure conversation by advocacy groups. At least mm -hmm. they, they, they traditionally haven't always been. Yep. And... When I talk to legislators who represent those areas, they say to me, this is only for you know rich white people. Mm -hmm. Like My people aren't concerned. So bringing those users, those bicycle users who are already existing in those communities into the conversation and letting them be drivers of a lot of the conversation of what they want to see in their communities in terms of bicycle infrastructure is very, very important for a whole variety of reasons. In California, it's important because I also have to convince those legislators to care about this, to vote for it. And, you know, 
I can't go into those communities and organize their residents, um, but you can as an advocacy group. And it's really important to make that tent a lot bigger, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be, and I, I think in California they're doing that, and I do see a lot more intentionality in terms of that. And by the way, people in those communities want the same thing. They want safety for their kids. They want to be able to ride, you know, their kids to ride their bike on the street. You know, they want a bicycle commute to work if they can. They want to do it safely. But these are traditionally underinvested communities when it comes to traffic infrastructure. They tend to not have street trees. They tend often, they tend to not have safety. They also, in California in any case, have some of the highest accident rates and rates of fatalities for pedestrians and cyclists. Yep. So when we do safety legislation about traffic, we always try our best to engage people in those communities who have been um, been hurt by that lack of investment in safety infrastructure. So that's the equity piece that I was talking about, a large part of the equity piece. And, you know, it, it certainly needs to be part of the conversation everywhere. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I would not call that controversial, but essential as the conversation progresses. So thank you for, for laying that out there. Um, Rep. Sabados, I'm going to turn it to you a little bit to kind of tack on to some of the work that's happening in the Massachusetts State House. I know that we're working on a traffic uh, safety bill, and you and I have worked in the past on funding mechanisms for paths and parkways. Can you dive into a little bit of how it's going in Beacon Hill? Yeah, well, I'm happy to dive into a little bit about the funding in particular because I think it's really interesting and it's it's opening up new possibilities for communities. I, I, um, I was thinking as you were talking a minute ago that a lot of times bikes are also viewed as a, what we like to call like the last mile uh, for transportation. So you take the train, you get into a community, you can get on your bike, uh, you take the bus, similar. I think one of the things that we forgot sometimes in this advocacy is that um, the train needs to accommodate bikes. So for example, here in Northampton, we have the Valley Flyer that comes through uh, multiple times a day. It comes down from Vermont into Connecticut. You can take it all the way down to DC. There's room for one bicycle, one, not just per person, one bicycle total for the whole train. That's the number of bike spaces you can reserve. Mm. Makes it really impossible to then get off the train and take your bike anywhere if there's no spot on the train. Buses, same thing. There's maybe room for two or three in the front, but that's it. Um, and so these are some of the places that I think we need to expand our advocacy work. Um, but in terms of, of the funding, I want to go back to the, the CPA piece because I love it and it's really wonky and fun. Um, so in, in Massachusetts, we have a Community Preservation Act. So additional money that towns can use either for affordable housing, uh, for historic preservation, communities put in some money, the state matches it. And until very recently, you were not able to use that money to buy right of way for, for former rail lines. And a lot of our bike paths in Massachusetts are just that, they're former rail lines. And so um, it was a really fun piece of legislation to work on to expand this funding source and that communities have, we're watching them right now tap into it. But it was, uh, it was a fun interplay of a federal law, environmental protection, Department of Revenue, to allow something this simple to go through. And it, I just, again, this morning was in a community where they're like, yes, we used our CPA dollars. The uh, Surface Transportation Board just approved the sale of this right of way and uh, Greenway is going into effect because of it. And I think it really does speak to sometimes with transportation, getting down into the weeds is the most important thing that we can do to solve um, what which should be a solvable problem, but is otherwise not. Yeah, I love that. I know, so much more to unpack here, and I know that our time is limited. So I'm curious on that note of getting into the weeds, 
where will we go from here? And I guess I'll kick this back to you, Rep Sabadosa, and then to you, Assemblymember Member Friedman. But, but looking ahead, how will we build on this foundation that we've laid? How will we kind of keep trudging through the weeds? And how, in your vision, will we build kind of the next generation of sustainable transportation? And um, on that tagline, what can we do collectively to support? Well, I think um, um, about equity really rings true in Massachusetts. And for anybody who watches the news here, you will have seen that our trains are literally, literally on fire. Um, and our, trans our public transportation system is, is falling apart. It's old and there have been a lot of investments over the years. I think that there is a real commitment right now from the, um, I'm going to say knock on wood, incoming administration, as well as the state legislature to make some serious investments and change what that looks like. So we are moving back towards a system where people can actually use uh, trains and buses to get to work and changing the management of those systems so that we're restoring confidence, consumer confidence in trains. Um, so I, I feel like that's going to be the focus of our work in the next session. And because of that, because we've had to actually shut down the T in Boston for long stretches of time, there has been an expansion of, of bike lanes. So there's been more of a conversation about how do you get around the city, if not by car, if not by the T. And I, I, I'm hearing people say like, oh, wait, you actually can bike in Boston. Um, I've biked in Boston. It can be very scary, but I think things are on a, on, on a different trajectory now. And um, I'm hopeful that we will continue those conversations in the next session and we will expand it, not just um, in the city of Boston itself, but well beyond. We talk a lot about regional equity in Massachusetts, and mm -hmm. it is true. A lot of our bike paths are built in beautiful places for tourists to use them so that they can bike along the coast, on the Cape, and in other places, but they haven't. there hasn't been that same focus on how do you get to work, how do you get to school, how do you go to the grocery store. I think those are the conversations we're having now, and when we talk about connecting the whole state with a bike trail, that is, that's extremely exciting. And when you then have communities saying, everybody in this, everybody in this town is going to have access, whether it's a five-minute ride or a 10-minute ride, that everybody's going to easily get on the bike trail if they want to, that's a real game changer. So I, I feel like we're on the right path. I hope I'm not being overly optimistic. <laughs> um, but um, from the conversations within the Transportation Committee, I, I do hear a lot of optimism about things just being a little bit different. I love that. Um, there's the old adage that bike advocates are some of the most stubborn and optimistic advocates out there because we've been at it for for decades, and I agree with you. I think the tides are, um, are are pushing us in the right direction. We do have some tailwinds, especially out in your district. So, thank you so much for the work out there, and we're proud to be a partner. Um, and some member Friedman, we talked about so much in this interview, from housing to climate to equity to road safety and, and the future. What is your vision um, in the California State Assembly? What do you have coming up soon, coming up next, and how can we support you? Well, I'm really inspired by what Lindsay's working on. And it's really, um, I'm going to continue working on tr trying to draw that nexus between uh, mobility and particularly mass transit, which we you have a lot more in Boston than we have in California, between that and our housing crisis and our climate crisis and our equity goals and our public health crisis, keep making people understand that there are real costs to car culture. And like you said, it does offer that, that mobility freedom, but that's mostly because we don't give people other options. Our land use made it, has made it very difficult to get around without a car. 
And so when people hear that you want to do something different, they immediately think you want to take away their car and you're going to punish them. Because right now it is really hard to get around Los Angeles with public transportation. And it's really unsafe to get around and difficult to get around by bike. So, of course, I don't want to force anybody into what we have now. But what I try to show is that there's a better, there is a way of having a much better quality of life if we change the way that we do our investments particularly. And so I introduced two bills last year, AB 2438 and AB 2237, that both were intended to change the way that we do planning, but also the way that we fund projects to try to make those truly transformative active transportation projects, the ones that really do connect people between where they live and where they work to the top of our funding because of its effect on emissions particularly. And to have people think twice about the typical uh, transportation projects that we fund, being highway widenings and new highways, and to also, you know, have those public transportation projects also rise to the top, because your values really should be shown through where your budget is going. If If your values say one thing, but you're spending money on something different, then you're either lying about your values or you're never going to be able to live your values. And in California, that's what's happening, unfortunately. Way too much of our funding goes to things that we claim are not where our values are. So having this conversation has really shown the light on that. You know, we we have elected officials now, major elected officials, walking into meetings and saying, our goal needs to be to widen all of our roads. You know, we need to change that mindset and and have more people say, no, our, our values should be about doing projects that reduce emissions, increase equity and quality of life and public health, and give us those kinds of options, and also reduce traffic congestion at the same time for the people who do continue to drive. Mm-hmm. So um, my work will continue to be on that nexus and on trying to move our values in line with our budget and on uh, safety and public health, because it's that safety, too, that is, you know, again, stopping a lot of this transition because too many people are dying and getting maimed in our streets. Well, we're with you on it. And so let's keep in touch on how we can keep the bills moving forward and all the work that you and your team is doing out there. It's very inspiring here on the East Coast too to see what a major player, not just on the national stage, but the global stage can really do to, uh, to, to convert what you've got and make it more sustainable and make it more friendly and accessible. Thank you. Before I wrap up, and I would also like to ask both of you what your bike joy is. And that is, what is a recent, could be you, could be a story, could be anything about biking that brings that spark, that inspiration, that um, euphoria to you of a, of a little personal tale? So, um, Well, I really, I'm not a huge bike rider around LA, I will confess. I did for a while, but it's really, really hard for me to get where I need to go. Uh, by bicycle. I have a staffer who rides his bike like everywhere. Um, and I admire that a lot, but I think until I can afford an e-bike, I probably am a little ways away from that. But in Sacramento, I live about three and a half miles from the Capitol building and they have very good bicycle infrastructure in downtown Sacramento. And I love using it. I love the feeling of riding to work and it's calming and the wind is in my hair and I get a little bit of exercise, just enough to kind of get myself going, to feel like I did something. And I love my bike joy is when I go through the guardhouse at the Capitol building on my bike and pull into the bike locker because I feel like I'm one of the, you know, I can set an example and also live what I work on every day. 
And also seeing that I have staff, my, my transportation staff, I think all of them ride their bikes to work every single day, some of them from great distances. And that makes me very, very proud. So we don't legislate just for other people. We pr try to practice what we preach. And uh, I will say that it's fun. It's fun, too. I love it. Thank you so much. Rep Sabadosa, would you like to share a bike joy with us? All right. I, I have two. Um, so the first one that I'm just I'm going to put out there, if, if anyone is, is in the New England area, um, I think my favorite place to bike is Burlington, Vermont, not in my district, so I don't know, but you can bike sort of across Lake Champlain, and it is the most magical thing ever, so that is one incredible biking spot that everyone needs to put on their cycling bucket list, but my bike, my, my other bike joy is really kind of silly, so in our house, we set all kinds of ridiculous just monthly goals, made-up goals, like we're going to walk so many miles this month, we're going to bike so many miles this month. Um, so one month we were two miles short of our goal and it was probably about 11 o'clock at night and we were like, you know what, we can do it. <laughs> so we went out and it was beautiful and starry and we made, we looped the neighborhood and we got our extra three miles in and it just spoke to how incredible, free, how, how much freedom there is. You talked about car culture being associated with freedom, but no, being on a bicycle at night, just having fun with your family, enjoying the beautiful neighborhood, seeing the stars, feeling like exhilarated and fresh and meeting that goal, I think was one of the most exciting things. Super silly, but it was a lot of fun. Awesome. I love it. Um, <laughs> Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa of the 1st Hampshire District out in Western Massachusetts representing the, uh, the Hill Towns and um, the colleges of Western Mass in that Massachusetts House of Representatives. And uh, Laura Freeman, Assembly Member of the 43rd District in the California State Assembly. Thank you so much for your collaboration, your work, your effort, and your time um, letting us here on Bike Talk. Thanks so much. That was Assembly Member Friedman from California and Representative Sabadosa in Massachusetts with Galen Mook, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. Now a blast from last summer, Bike Talk hosts Laura Gray and Galen Mook recorded Bike Joys from the Boston Bike Party. All right, let's do this. Yeah. My Bike Joy is Boston Bike Party. Yeah. I just love Boston Bike Party. And tonight was amazing. Uh, my bike joy is being out in community like we are today, having fun, playing music, and just enjoying each other's company. It's amazing. My bike joy is riding here right now with everybody with different cultures, different race, different sex, enjoying the time at this very moment. Enjoying with everybody here, seeing the smile, seeing everybody outside in the city of Boston. Enjoying just a great night. This nice, beautiful weather in Boston. Uh, yeah. What's your bike joy? Wearing a dress while biking. <laughs> so my name is Edward. I am co-founder of Tricall Funk, along with my man Aaron Myers. And man, this is our first bike party. And I would say what brings me joy is just seeing the wholesome environment, seeing the bike marshals just keeping us safe, and us just taking over the streets, you know, taking over public space and uh, reclaiming that shit. So that just makes me happy to see. Do you have a bike joy too? What's up? Do you have a bike joy? A bike joy? Yeah. Oh my gosh, too many to count. Let's see, where did we start? What did he already mention? It says my, you can No, okay. I got to say, seeing the families out here, even got the pets out here. We got illumination out here. We got a funky sensation out here because the trike called Funks out here. <laughs> Okay, what's your bike joy? Uh, reconnecting with a thousand of my closest friends on the streets of the city that I call home. 
Liza, what is your bike joy? And tell people what you do down in Providence. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I know, putting her on the spot right now. All right. I organized the Providence Streets Coalition and PVD Bike Jam, which is a baby born of Boston Bike Party. <laughs> and my bike joy is riding my bike with my friends and dancing underneath the highway. Woo! Uh, my bike joy is riding late at night when there's no cars on the road. My bike joy is seeing places that I would never see if it wasn't for friends I was riding with. That's a really good one. What is your bike joy? Rainbows and sparkles. Rainbow lights. Beautiful, thank you. <laughs> so, my this is my first time riding since I was a kid. Actually, my boyfriend just bought me this bike today for the bike party. Wait, brand new bike? Brand new bike. Brand new, right? And decked it out, and so we're here just to have a great time. My bike joy was pulling together this event and seeing just how many people. I knew people missed bike party, but like, oh my god! And then all the people who never got to do it two years ago, coming out and doing it. But really, really, my biggest bike joy of this evening was all of our marshals and our sweep because. Honestly, a group this size would never have gotten through Boston very easily if we didn't have people just like crushing it, blocking all the intersections for us. That was absolutely amazing. What about you? What's your bike joy? First of all, this is a really good question. So I just started working with the city of Cambridge. I did not want to get a job with anybody because I don't want to work for anybody. You know what I'm saying? So I finally got a job for the city of Cambridge. I'm working with children. I'm working with high schoolers training them how to ride bikes and then they train the elementary school kids so now i'm watching the high schoolers that we train train the elementary school kids so this was the first week of that and today was like the best day we watched like three kids learn how to ride bikes we watched them be so scared to ride the bike and then they rode the bike and then they let their fears go like keep on pedaling and they rode and it was like cloud nine Great freaking question because that's amazing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Why are you apologizing? Because that was really big and I don't know if you can top that. <laughs> oh, Brittany, you're up. So can you sorry, top it? I can't top it, but tonight's bike joy was when we were riding by and there were people on bikes who weren't with us who wanted to know who we were and then were asking if they could hop on. And of course, we said, yes, bike party, join us. And they stayed on for the whole ride. And I love it. And I'm also so grateful for all the marshals who were did such a great job balancing, keeping us safe and being kind to the cars and it was just such a great night thanks everyone for making it happen very nice oh my gosh what love thanks laura thanks for sharing that isn't that precious yeah. oh my god i'm re-listening to it today like just warmed my heart so much oh man so we had in order i think we had peter and then elijah and then amy and then eddie and then aaron and then we had jeff oh you Liza, met gabby in there too gabby was in there mm -hmm. yeah john you had yourself, Laura. Mm -hmm. We had somebody who I didn't think we caught the name of. No, I didn't catch their name. It and was then, two people yep, doing a little had, back and was forth. It was Lionel from Cambridge Give mm -hmm. Back and then Brittany. So this is just like the community coming out. Mm -hmm. Legit. Thank you. New community, older community. It was great. It was a melding of everybody. Yeah, you're so good. What is your bike, Joy? Ooh, so I have so many to choose from. So I'm going to not go too much, but I was recently on a bike trip which you have actually ridden with me when we went four years ago to Cape Breton mm -hmm. and did the Cabot Trail. Speaking of a beautiful place to ride. Honestly, I mean, no joke. I think of all the places in the world, this might be the top for like road pavement style riding. 
It is this island off the coast of Nova Scotia, still part of Nova Scotia, right in there in North Atlantic, right near the Cabot Strait where the St. Lawrence comes in. And it is a cliffside, full fault line, rock formations everywhere, oceans, foliage, full forests, bald eagles, moose, just, oh, it's so good. And Did you get to see a moose this time? We did. No, oh, so jealous. No joke. So maybe my bike choice specifically is riding on the Plateau Highlands after the first day of the big climb. You mm-hmm. remember? It's like yeah. there's a place called French Lake up there. And in between the coast, there's this giant plateau that goes for like 20 kilometers. As we were rolling through, it was a quiet night, like 530 in the evening. So starting to get to be around dusk. And this giant moose just saunters out in the middle of the road and legit boom we stop like 50 yards from it yeah it stops looks at us we look at it looks at us we look at it looks at us we look at it we're like what do we do we learned though as long as the moose is looking up and the horns are up it's not going to charge okay so we're good it's good yep yep if the moose ever lowers its head that's a problem yeah you gotta watch out if you're online right now go to cape breton and look on the topography and there's this little spot between pleasant bay and then you get to like neil's harbor look in between there you will see a thousand foot climb and then a 20-mile flat, and then a 1,000-foot descent. Yep. <laughs> so probably it was also the descent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now a bike joy from Bike Talk host Taylor Nichols on his trip to Amsterdam to visit Percy's Bikes. Percy, can you tell me where we are? We're in Keizersgracht in the middle of the center of Amsterdam, and you're in my bike shop now. You know, I was just walking by and I saw the sign that said Percy Bikes and there were some beautiful bike frames. I'll post some pictures along with it in the window. So I came in and Percy is a bike painter, really, right? How'd you get started doing this? I started doing this out of hobby 20 years ago, something like that. I started painting bikes for friends. First my own bike and people like that. And from one came the other and slowly I started up a little business for myself. That's actually where I'm now. So he's a physical therapist, he told me earlier, or he was a physical therapist. Now he's a bike painter. Yeah. So people bring you their own bikes, but you also sell bikes. I sell bikes. Before I rented out one or two, but now I sell and maintain and right. Yeah, he's not going to rent me a bike, just so you know. <laughs> but <laughs> No, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. But he says that the biggest advantage of having a Percy bike is no one steals it because it's unique. It's one of a kind. And you'll see when I post some of the pictures, but they're just gorgeous. I'm leaning over one that is pink with red hearts. And then a black one with the pie symbol and a bunch of other symbols on it. They're all sort of the Amsterdam bike frames, the step-through frames and the double top bar frames. And so they're all the Amsterdam-style bikes, but they're just absolutely gorgeous. One looks like beaten up trash, but it's just gorgeous. And then stripes and shapes and flowers and polka dots and zebras, and it's just amazing. So if you ever get to Amsterdam and you don't want to rent a bike, but you want to buy a bike or you want to have a bike painted, you got to come to Percy's. Percy, thanks a lot for talking with us. Anything you want to say last about biking in Amsterdam or Percy's bikes? Well, I hope you there, especially in the States, step on that bicycle. (laughs) That's exactly right. We were talking about the bicycle culture and how much more advanced it is here in Amsterdam than it is in Los Angeles and Boston. But we're getting there. I hope. Percy, thanks very much. You're welcome. Have a good day. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week.
push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.